Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today I'm interviewing Evan Folds, who is an impact entrepreneur and business strategist with a focus on regenerative agriculture. His consulting platform, Be Agriculture, works with clients across the landscape of agriculture and advocates for healthy people, plants, and planet through living soil methods so the earth may be healed. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be here. Yeah. So tell me, how did you get into agriculture? Oh, the uh, loaded question. It kind of got into me. Um, (laughs) Okay. You know, uh, I I suppose I would say, you know, I grew up with an interest in the natural world and a city. So I think that's not uncommon for most people these days. And I went to college for, uh, to get a degree in marine biology was my Uh initial interest. And when I got there, really sort of discovered the paradigm of obscurity in regards to specialization. And my interest Mm -hmm. was more in the forest, not the trees. So didn't really hit the inspiration piece, kind of came out the other side of that. And uh, with a degree in uh, biology and a degree in religion, uh, which I think highlights the systems approach. Back then it was very unconscious, but I was always trying to tie it all together, you know, Um, and moved to the Virgin Islands. I had an opportunity to move down there and didn't know anybody, built community. It's kind of the opposite of what I was supposed to be doing, but maybe one of the best things I ever did. And, you know, I found this book called Secrets of the Soil. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of like to say it found me. Um, and it just really inspired me. It would, and the gist of it was really that with an agricultural lens, there's more to life than what's physically here, you know? And, and it was such a, you know, it's such a simple statement that most people can nod their head to. And then, you know, a lot of times we go to trying to define that, right? Mm. And we start wars and we get really mad at each other. And I, you know, I take a step back from that and just call for reverence for what I call life force. Like, mm-hmm. why does a plant grow up against gravity, right? Mm. I mean, in a way of making that point, would, I don't know if your listeners have ever heard of Victor Schauberger, but he was a great inspiration of me. He's known as the water wizard. He had this thought where, you know, we spend so much time considering how Newton got hit in the head by the apple and pondering gravity, but we spend no time considering how the apple got up there to begin with. Mm. And it, it's, that's, that just always hits me really profoundly yeah. because we're really treading on half the story. So this book gave me that ammunition, if you will. And I was just followed the inspiration back then. The banks used to give you money and uh, this is 2001 and we got some money and some money from some family and started a garden center called Progressive Gardens. And I did that for 14 years and mm-hmm. had four other companies in the meantime. And it was kind of a boot camp. And so, you know, I guess the answer to your question is that book. And, you know, the next book that I read was called The Agriculture Course. And it was a collection of eight lectures uh, around what's known now as biodynamic agriculture. And yep, Rudolf Steiner uh, delivered these lectures on how to regenerate the life force of a farm. In the beginning of that, that book, there's a, a, a passage, Aaron Hart Pfeiffer, one of his uh, students asked him, you know, why do people not show up for themselves in the world? Total paraphrase. I don't remember that quote, but his response was, it's a matter of nutrition. This was 1924. He said, it's, oh, wow. it's a matter of nutrition that food plants no longer contain the forces people need to build a bridge from thinking to will and action. 
And when I read that, the whole world made sense. You know, it was, that was really the starting point for me. All right. I, th- I want to unpack that because I think what you said right there is something that I'm really starting to realize too. And obviously, as I get older, I really start to think more about my health and just how I feel on a day-to-day basis. Because when I was 16, 18, I mean, you just have so much energy, you just pound through things. But now I'm in mid-30s and uh, I just had a birthday and I hate birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> But um, I, I was happy that I didn't turn 35 because I was like, that's halfway to 40. At least it was 34. I still feel somewhat young. <laughs> but but going, the reason I say that is like, obviously now I can really like, I eat sugar. I can sense it the next day. My muscles, I can sense, you know, you can really, um, I'm not supposed to be eating gluten. If I eat gluten, I can sense that as well. So, and I think what you said right there is so important is people just don't have the energy and when they're eating poorly, they feel bad. And when they feel bad, they want a crux and the crux is more bad food. And so they're creating this whole cycle of poor nutrition, eating poorly, poor nutrition, eating poorly. They don't feel like doing anything. So they sit down and Netflix and chill and then you have someone who, you know, as you just said, not showing up for the world. And again, I don't want to put the blame on people so much as it's the system that I feel like a lot of people got into and they haven't woken up to the fact that what I put in my body is me. And do I want my body to be white sugar and, you know, uh, poorly produced meats and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think what you said is just so important to get people on board with eating the really good food every single day. Yeah, yeah, that's spot on. And, you know, it, it's, it's maybe somewhat surprisingly, it's a really deep thought form because, it, you know, the whole adage of we are what we eat, which mm. is so well-meaning and so true on, on a surface level, um, to kind of pick Steiner's impulse up a little bit, you know, he actually took issue with that, not, as, not in the idea that that's a wrong statement, necessarily, but that the idea of most of what we eat physically passes through us, Mm -hmm. that our body actually builds itself out of the forces in the food, which is a really unconventional idea and and frankly, a foreign idea in regards Mm -hmm. to how we learn about the world and life. You know, again, you know, I I sort of came up with the, you know, it's weird. I kind of backed into all this starting in the stars, right? Yeah. I was yeah. completely inspired by that. And I quickly realized that I couldn't carry that dialogue and be taken seriously by the average person. Um, and so the, the retail store, which was inspired by that, was really an exercise of meeting people where they were. And I developed this, this platform I called Bioenergetic Agriculture. The premise mm-hmm. was that there was a physical, mineral, biological, and energetic capacity to a living system. And if you look at conventional agriculture, it's physical and it's mineral. You, know, mm-hmm. you plow and you fertilize the plants and then you created yeah. all the problems that you chase around with all the dangerous stuff and um, organic sort of backs into the biological realm um, and but both discount or ignore this concept of life force, which is really what biodynamics was championing. But biodynamics wasn't talking about mineral diversity and microbial diversity and mineral balance and cover crops and things that are entirely you know relevant to proper and healthy agronomy. So my effort was to try to mash all of that together, give it a word and kind of create a platform. And so I say that one of the experiences that I had uh, through those 14 years in my retail stores, I had a commercial wheatgrass business for about 10 years. And oh, fascinating. Yeah. And it, it, it was really interesting because I got into it because I heard about how healthy wheatgrass was. And I was, mm-hmm. we made this sea mineral fertilizer called earth tonic. And we, I was playing around with that. And I took a flat to my health food store and they loved it because it was 
superior to what they were getting. And so we did that for a long time. And I bring it up in this context because, you know, I was able to see people literally cure their cancer. I'm not here to say it'll cure all yeah. cancer, you know, from the mountaintops, but I, I lived that, right? Yeah. And fibromyalgia and, you know, all of these issues that people would have coming to a garden center and we were growing flats for them. And, you know, wh- wh- I really got into, well, why is that? And, you know, the, the, the conventional answer is all oh, the amount of chlorophyll in it or the nutrient mm. density and all of these relevant things. But what I think really is the secret is name something in your d- daily diet that's of any consistency and substance that's mm. alive, that's, yeah. you know, within 15 minutes from being harvested. And it's a different entity at that. It doesn't make it bad for you 30 minutes later, but it's beginning to break down enzymatically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you think about it in that way, um, but this idea of how it all works together, right, was really mm-hmm. profound. And I think that that's a good allegory for what you're talking about, because at the at the end, if, if you're not thinking about what you're eating, man, you're going to get what the modern world's got, which is a mm-hmm. chronic health epidemic. Um, yeah. And and unfortunately, though, even if you are paying attention to what you're eating at that point, it can still be deficient. Right. And this mm-hmm. gets into mm-hmm. the method of agronomy that we've carried over the last yeah. generations has just diluted yeah. the whole point of what food is. So well, I'm going to stop you right there and give uh, an example of this. Please. So obviously my wife and I are very careful what our six-year-old and our four-year-old eat. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously we're very alternative. So, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, recently our, our older daughter's teeth completely started to break down. I mean, we had to have several thousand dollars worth of teeth work done on her. I mean, she's mm-hmm. six right? and like my wife and I were freaking out. Cause I mean, like these kids get bone broth. I mean, they take the, the good vitamins. I mean, we cook whole chickens once a week and there's, you know, all that stuff and, you know, fresh vegetables, but I think it comes back down to even some of the stuff that we're producing doesn't have some, I think what you said, right. I liked what you said there about the life source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, again, cause we're, I mean, we're crunchy as they come Yeah. and, uh, and we still had things. So we're just like, okay, how do we go to the next deeper level in nutrition? Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about what you said is it recalls a book, um, man, I'm going to forget the title of it. Um, the insatiable gardener, I believe it is. Okay. Um, and the premise of it was around base saturation soil testing and methods Ooh, of yep. articulating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mineral balance and prescriptions. It's a service that I actually provide. It's called soil test solutions. And, mm-hmm. you know, you run the, run the uh, data that you get that's complete through a spreadsheet of what it should be, which is known based on Albrecht and Reams and these people yep. that have done that work. And it kicks out the deficiency per element and you can write the prescription based on known commodities. So I do that for lawn care companies, et cetera. And so I was studying this book and the story in the book was about the author and kind of like what you're describing, crunchy as they come out in Oregon, following the organic, you know, impulse yeah. in the seventies and doing all the right things with composting, et cetera. And his teeth were falling out mm-hmm. and he got an assignment to write a book back then and moved to Hawaii for, or it was maybe it was like Fiji or something like that. Yeah. Some yeah. Island volcanic Island where the food wasn't organic to the standard that he would have grown on his land. It was conventional, but the nutrient density by default on this volcanic soil was just off the charts, right? Mm. And it was healing his teeth. And, yeah. and that was really his moment of saying, you know, this is, is it, it isn't just about having cleaner food. I mean, as important as that is, God, yeah. it's critical. But if that's the metric that we're using to evaluate what's good for us or what can regenerate and heal our bodies and maintain that health, then we're missing the boat. So, yeah, that's an interesting experience that you're having there. Uh, it's really important. 
Yeah. So let's, let's dive a little bit. You talked about the life force. Now I know like in some of the microgreen operations and even wheatgrass, I've seen where they try to ground every single tray back to the earth. Um, are you familiar at all with that? I've heard that concept, never played with it, but I'm familiar. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting too. Now, another thing that we're just, I recently talked to a guy, um, they do radio waves in water. So they call it a, an advanced plant booster technology where they harvest harmonics. I think like that. And obviously I am not ready to start promoting them because this little tiny thing, and obviously you can't see if you're listening, but it's literally this little device that's like three inches long by inch and a half. It is very expensive, but they claim it's going to work. So we're doing an AB test in our greenhouse with it. Um, and, uh, half the greenhouse is getting it and half the greenhouse isn't, and we'll see at the end of the season, you know, if it actually makes a difference. Fascinating. Uh, I've talked to those guys. That's an interesting project. Yeah. So let's break, talk a little bit about that is, you know, obviously getting deeper into this, you talk a little bit, some of what you do is, um, you do some natural crop production stuff. I think you said here, the activated water. So talk a little bit about like what you, what work you do there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really started around a, just honestly a fascination. I, I remember the, the first moment, sort of like the secrets of the soil book. One of the chapters in that book was about Patrick Flanagan. Okay. who was one of the original, like water is more than wet people in the modern moment uh, in mm -hmm. the US at least. And there was a dialogue around, you know, the, the ability of water above and beyond what we imagine it to be, which to me was just fascinating because I'd never thought about that, you know, and with any texture or critically at all. And then I remember in the same moment, I, I, I came across the documentary, What the Bleep Do They Know? I don't know if you've ever seen that one, uh -huh. but um, it's kind of a, almost a B, B level uh, documentary, but it, it was really thought provoking. And it had this piece on, uh, they were kind of talking through a subway on these pictures of a Masura Moto. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. And it was just, you know, water images of, you know, polluted water and then water prayed over by Buddhist monks or water exposed to hate music and water exposed to Beethoven. And he, and he mm -hmm. was documenting what the water crystal, how it would crystallize based on these exposures. Oh, fascinating. And it was, yeah, it was mind blowing really. And Moto, Dr. Moto actually has passed. Um, he's, he read, read several books, the hidden messages in water was the one that I read. And that really just kind of catapulted me into this fascination with water. Um, and at the same time, I was learning about Victor Schauberger, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he championed the concept of implosive energy. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, explosive energy, such as how we use it in modern society, is very wasteful, very low energy transfer, polluting, a lot of heat, et cetera. Um, nature works through implosive energies. So there's a total energy transfer. There's no pollution. There's no waste. And so this insight that he had basically by being a forester and spending time on his own with water in an intimate context. And he just kind of came out with all of these technologies, frankly, that were, he's sort of like a Nikola Tesla for water in a way. Mm. And he has all of these technologies that, you know, he came over to Austin, Texas at the end of his life and spent a year there and downloaded all his technologies and then went home and he died. And, you know, there's a whole conspiracy talk around it and all <laughs> of that, but um, yeah. But it's really interesting. To the best book on it is uh, written by Callum Coates. Uh, it's called Living Energies. And it really is a diagram uh, heavy mind blower. Um, and, and so I was learning about that. And then, you know, you couple that with biodynamics. And you know, Steiner wasn't the best of like explaining the context with where he was bringing things. Um, mm -hmm. 
he was also in 1920s, uh, but his instructions on how to use BD 500 and 501, two of the preparations that he outlined, were to stir water in one way for till it organizes and then reverse the flow. And you do that even with your arm or a stick, you know, for an hour. And the point of that, again, he didn't get into the, the rationale, but what the insight that I saw was that, you know, if you imagine stirring a bucket with your hand and then reversing the flow, mm-hmm. you're creating moments of implosion in that chaos that you've reversed the flow in. In the same way that you would accomplish through a drain, for example, you know, water's folding in on itself. And actually, one of the things that one of the companies that I had through that boot camp that I described was called Progressive Farms. And we pioneered the development of Vortex style compost tea brewers and developed, you know, a way in which to leverage air to move water uh, through an implosive moment um, through a cone bottom tank and a manifold that would bring it back up. And you put air tubes down the arms and you're blowing bubbles in a full glass of water airlift yep. you know and so yep. you're creating yep. this unimpeded flow and you know so I, I was just having all of these insights and then from that kind of like you are in that context just started reaching out to all of these alternative technologies that would imprint water and just had a lot of experiences with them frankly um and it, you know I, I had these stir wands i don't know if they're even still around but you know i'd have a bottle of water and i'd pour people a glass to taste and then i'd stir it with this wand that would you know imprint energies into the water and they tasted it again and I mean, I, there was this one lady I remember, she, I could tell she wasn't very healthy. She came in with a mellow yellow and you could just tell. And I, I did this little experiment t- trying to build conversation and she almost like couldn't make it out of the store. You know, I, I had to help her to her car because she, the detox effect is kind of how it's described. So, you know, I, I, I've culminated all that. I, I wrote a blog post. It's quite long on my website called The Story of Water. And it's just been something that I've tracked over time and uh, from an insight level that, you know, what we're 70% water, all of those cliches are really important. And, you know, you yeah. look at water and it's H2O, but it's never H2O, right? And yeah. it's, it's never the same. And, you know, I guess one other point that I would, from a resource standpoint, uh, the, the fourth phase of water is a book written by Dr. Gerald Pollack. He's a University of Washington, and he's probably the preeminent researcher in the modern posture, but there's a history in his book that talks about how the French made insight into these proclivities of water back in the 50s. And, the Russians in the set, there was the Russians in the fifties, the French in the seventies. And basically the gist of it is that water is the worst control on earth, right? Like if you're going to set up an experiment to publish something in the journal nature, mm. you've got to have a baseline control. And when you have that H2O water purified in a test tube, even then it picks up trace silica, right? Mm. Which means that it's contaminated, which throws the whole research paradigm out. So it's really stunted the whole realm of research that really parlays into our ability to connect to and understand from a scientific standpoint in the modern posture. So I, I think that just highlights how little we are allowed to investigate water on the parameters that we've invented to tell us what's true or not. And that's yeah. same parallel as biodynamics, right? How do you study something that's a frequency uh, in that context? It's really difficult to get to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, something you say on your website too is that um, we ingest a, a credit card's worth of plastic every single week. <laughs> right. Mind blowing. Uh, are you familiar at all with the work of Dr. Shanna Swan? No, no, I'm not familiar with her. Yeah, so she did a lot of work around the plasticizers. 
And uh, the, the podcast is, 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 is one of those things. I don't listen to a lot of his podcasts, but obviously this was on health. And because of what the topic, I was like, oh, I should listen to this one. And I was blown away. Wow. It just talks about how the fertility rates in um, humans is halved and wow. how it basically is directly related to the number of plastics that we ingest, um, especially these, these soft plastics, which can cause major issues. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It made me think about that when you talked about water, because water picks all that stuff up and you it's even know, roll. Yeah. Well, even it made the grand Canyon, it. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Exactly. Just slowly working. All right. So you talked about the, the garden center for 14 years, and then you also, um, food deserts. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about your kind of work around those. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, bioenergetic agriculture and, you know, I was sitting there one day making a little acronym BE agriculture and just, it hit me be, be agriculture, right. Be a part of agriculture. And this was right around the time that I was kind of stepping back from my product businesses. And I'd really done an inventory of what inspired me. And it wasn't really the business. It was the connecting point of, being able to pass forward what I've been inspired by and, and learned and been taught. And that was really what made me alive. So I, I really started to exclude things that didn't uh, reinforce that. And that space is one of those moments where you don't realize what you're carrying until it's not there. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that space just started to be filled with these really incredible projects. And so it was a really creative time. And, and, and that be agriculture thing, what, what came to me next was that, you know, be a part of agriculture, right? Like whether we realize it or not, we already are. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is Wendell Berry, eating is an agricultural act, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's such a powerful statement because what I experienced in my garden center was a lot of people that were trying to do everything that they could to be self-sustainable. But then the world that we built just really doesn't allow it. It's not built for it, right? And, and without a high level of intention, because it is, if you have intention, I don't want to discourage that idea yeah. at all, but- there was a lot of frustration. And in our area, we have a really poor soil. And I, I was basically there to support people, mm-hmm. putting effort into trying to do the right things and not having the, the wherewithal or the conditions to do it. And so, you know, really came to this awareness over time that agriculture was more than just growing food, right? It's more than farming. It's also the eating. It's also the impact that that eating and that farming has on individual health, on public health, on environmental health. And if we're not really looking at the forest, so to speak, as a food farming and health paradigm in regards to what agriculture is, it sort of by default allows us to, to walk away from the thread, right? Like we, like and where I live, it's, it's, the county is very small. 70% of the county, New Hanover County is, is the city of Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So we're never going to be traditional farming county. We're surrounded by it and we're impacted by it at the end of a watershed, which is a, another layer of my local scenario. But, um, what I realized is that the county of New Hanover County had given up on agriculture. So my whole mantra became, we need to save farming in New Hanover County. And I've proceeded to, over the last couple of years, I was a, I'm an elected official with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District, mm-hmm. which, uh, whose charter is you know, to improve and uh, protect the quality of soil and water, which is, if you can take into it, just about everything. So I've, it was a really nice net. And from after that, I, I started beating the drum about a learning farm locally mm-hmm. that would, uh, you know, post up a dedicated intentional farm in the city limits on purpose that would champion the education and the therapy that, you know, we all know is so critical and mm-hmm. is measured at this point and proven. Uh, but it wanted to overlay an economic development uh, 
prospect, you know, this whole food lawns approach, you know, you take the Curtis Stone extreme and, you know, not many people are going to generate a hundred grand out of a quarter of an acre. But what if that number was five, $10,000 a year? And that actually turns out to be the affordable housing gap that's mm. rampant in every inner city in the United States. I mean, how cool would it be to solve the affordable housing yeah. problem with a food lawn yeah. project, which yeah. five, 10 grand on a landscape, growing the yeah. right crop and the right model is not a difficult thing to accomplish no. Uh, no. over a year. So no. that that's a reality that we're moving towards. So I was kind of generating all of this interest and we got a $200,000 learning farm grant from the USDA that we're operating off of. I'm the policy director for that project. And my goal was to make sure that we could implement a farm in the city limits to begin with. And secondarily is farming legal and residential landscapes. Um, and we've got a code rewrite serendipitously happening and we're almost to that point. And within all of that, I found out about a project called the Northside Food Co-op. And this was about a year and a half ago. I went to their meeting and it hooked me right away because it really speaks to the heart of the food farming and health paradigm. You know, here's a grocery store that can impact the way people uh, eat. You know, here's a, a grocery store that can impact the local farming system. Here's a grocery store that's incidentally being built in a food desert to your question, um, you know, that can impact the social determinants of health. This, this, project is a 35 year conversation. This, this neighborhood in the north side of downtown Wilmington has been a food desert for 35 plus years. And there's been two high level uh, commitments and uh, projects that did not come to fruition successfully over time. The last one was 15 years ago. So this community has been left behind, been promised and under underserved and is low wealth. And so I, I've, I'm the project manager for that project. And it turns out that it's a pioneering effort. I, we didn't, none of us knew this getting into it. It's about three or four years into this project. I connected about a year and a half ago, but it turns out this has only been done a cooperative grocery store in a food desert one time in the United States. Uh, there've been entrepreneur grocery stores built in food deserts, but mm-hmm. cooperative grocery stores are really new. And so that, that principle is really powerful because you know, if your listeners are not familiar, a cooperative business is essentially a one share, one person, one vote organization. It means that no one person can own one any more than the next person. And that the, literally the business is community owned by the diversity of people who own one share at a time that can vote for a board of directors, et cetera. So it's really the antidote, but it turns out that asking a low wealth underserved community to own itself is really tricky. Mm. And it gets into the conversation we were having a minute ago. You know, why are people on their heels why are they not leaning forward and showing up for themselves in this way that represents the creative and personal agency that we all have available to us? And I'm convinced that it's a matter of nourishment, you know? So mm-hmm. we're playing that out experimentally in a measurable way with our local hospital, with some federal grants that we're pursuing. You know, for example, if we got microgreens and bundled it in, you know, one in 10 people eat the recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables a day. Wow. Which that alone can explain the chronic health issue yeah. that we're having, yeah. right? Um, but in you know, twenty-five percent of kids don't drink water. You know, there's like these this collect right? Yeah. There's these collection of stats that are just like will bowl you over. So mm-hmm. this this neighborhood is is, you know, can't walk to a grocery store. Uh, we don't yeah. have public transit that's worth it. And what if we could get microgreens in a density that would be the amount for a daily vegetable intake and then mm-hmm. provide that for a 30 to 60 day window? And then report back on how you feel. You know, you were mentioning that earlier, which is the most profound moment. And mm-hmm. you can speak mm-hmm. it all day, but when you have that moment where you, you know, qualitatively feel better, there's 
nothing that uh, it's it's priceless, you know, Um, and you can really make that type of impact. Right. Exactly. So. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate about that. And I just, the co-op really is one way of, of, of engaging. You know, I guess one last point real quick that comes to mind. I, I was looking at this map and it was a, it was an infographic, essentially, of relative poverty all over the north side of downtown. And then S is for supermarkets and then a little, you know, highlight watermark of where it was a mile walk from a grocery mm, store. Okay. And, you know, the, the whole city's covered in this green area. And then the only area that's not is this north side food desert and all the poverty is there. And it just hits you like a ton of bricks. And we happened to have a shooting at Porsche Heinz Park in the north side mm. this Saturday, last Saturday night. And it wasn't a fatal shooting, um, but it was at a community event. And it just hit me that, you know, in trying to have these dialogues with local officials that are sort of oblivious to the power of this conversation, right? And understandably so in some ways, we don't teach ourselves these things. But the point that I'm trying to make is that the reason for these shootings, the reason for this crime, the reason for these issues that we don't seem to have answers for that are symptoms is a result of not having these basic requirements of being a healthy, happy human, satisfied. Mm -hmm. And if we can't take that level of seriousness for projects that go against the grain of how economics tells us where it makes sense to put a grocery store, we're going to get what we got, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's a really profound thing that if we could find a way to muster the the courage, frankly, to approach those things with, with intention that we could really make an impact that's immeasurable. You're right, because so often for these larger companies, it all comes down to the dollars and cents. Exactly. Not, you know, you know, so it's really interesting. Um, you know, we're building a new farm out here in Ohio, and uh, this spring has been all sorts of fun. Um, in fact, we're nine weeks now into getting our gas hooked up. You know, a couple of weeks ago during the middle of this process, I was like, you know what? Duke Energy spent, I don't know how many million dollars to label the uh, the giant, the stadium down in Cincinnati, the uh, football stadium. Mm-hmm. If they had literally spent a fraction of that on an SOP, that when you say, "Hey, I want to sign up for commercial gas," and then send you, "Here's all the things that are going to happen along the way," it could have saved us six weeks and literally probably eight thousand dollars. Yep, it's, it's ridiculous. It's it's just like you know, we just want to be famous and well known, and that's what we're going to do. It's easy to spend a million dollars and just uh, you know be in the side of a stadium instead of actually on the ground do the hard work. It's it's amazing. I have that same thought. We live near Fort Bragg, largest military mm. base in the yep. United States, and I have that thought seeing these fighter jets flying practice sorties <laughs> and it's like 150 in gas, you know, 150,000. And then the bomb that they're going to drop is you know another 300 grand, you know, and yes. it's like you're practicing. Yes. Um, and yes. yeah, it's, it's, it really is unbelievable. And there's a term that I like to use true cost accounting, mm-hmm. you know, and, and one of the things that I've experienced in trying to in doing this work is, you know, it's, it's not really, we, we're so focused on line items and how much things cost us, but we're not asking the question of how much it costs not to do these things mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and we don't have the ability to tell ourselves in a measurable way what that is we haven't developed the capacity it's doable i mean i'm there's a an economist his name's uh, i think it's ralph shammy i might have his first name wrong but he's an imf economist and he has turned the corner on carbon sequestration and he's earmarked whales as being a central component of the carbon cycle in the ocean and he's developing economic language around that and it's not it's not to make the point because I'm, I'm not totally well versed yet in what he's doing but the, it's not so much about the value of the whale itself it's a value of the whale within the whole system mm-hmm. in other words the, va- okay. the whale ha- doesn't have the value on its own its value comes with with how it, it connects in, the rest it interacts, right yeah 
And, yeah. and if you start to think along those lines without being technical, you can immediately see the value of some of these things that we're doing, like a farm, for example, that's mm-hmm. a regenerative farm to be specific. I mean, I, I'm convinced, and it's been my experience and, and really a, a mantra of mine, that regenerative agriculture is, is an antidote to the big challenge that we face globally. I mean, you talk about climate, carbon sequestration, you talk about hunger, easy, you talk mm-hmm. about poverty, you talk about healthcare. You know, th- this is the antidote, yet we don't have that economic model, kind of you referenced earlier, yeah. um, that you're looking at food deserts and then you do the equation on median income, college graduation, single parenthood, and you do the math. And if the number doesn't get above 75 out of 100, well, next, right? Yeah. But, but yeah. everybody eats. Right. Yeah. So like what kind of logic are we really bringing to the table and what kind of paradigm are we allowing to to present to us to yeah. have to deal with, frankly? Well, because I think the alternative to putting a good grocery store where people need it is that um, healthcare companies are going to get richer because the government's going to keep footing the bill for when people are sick. It's hard not to get cynical, you know, and yeah. I, it takes that moment, you know, at least to put that hat on to see it clearly, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. You know, it's, it's really interesting this last year and a half where we've been dealing with COVID there's not been one conversation about um, as a nation, let's talk about being healthy because healthy people did not have the massive side effects. It was people with preexisting conditions that were wrecked by this. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's, it blows you away. The number of people that died off this, but then you start looking at the comorbidities, even my dad, who's a, a doctor and he's incredibly entrenched in Western medicine. Um, and he was talking to me about, you know, some of the stuff that he's been, you know, trying to work with the people he's on working with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, come on, let's talk about if we would all stop, you know, instead of quarantining people in their homes, put them outside in the park, talk about getting a walk in, you know, this kind of stuff that we know is going to help them be healthier, cut the obesity rates, all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, too often I feel like we get, and I think, as you said, one thing you said at the beginning of the conversation is, you know, don't see the trees, see the forest. Mm. I think that's where we end up so often because we, we, we don't zoom out enough to see the big picture. Uh, it's, it's systems thinking is mm-hmm. really where we need to be. And, you know, on that front, there's a stat from Dr. Phil Landrigan and Dr. Zach Bush that said in yep. the 1960s, 6% of the population was diagnosed with a chronic disease. Uh, in 1986, that was 12.4%. Now the number is 54%. And there's even numbers that, that say it's that many percentage of children. Um, it's, it's just really, you know, and you look at autism and mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but, you know, to say this causes that is irresponsible, yes. right? Yes. What, yeah. what is responsible is to say that we are toxified beyond measure yes. in an obvious yeah. way, right? And yes. if we aren't responsible enough to open up a dialogue, to your point, around how we can actually engage this from a standpoint of health, yes. then it is mind-blowing. And one of my favorite stats within that was, I'm not really sure how I was paying attention at the time, but I, I remember Obama he was given when he first got elected. He was he gave a joint session speech at Congress because mm-hmm. Obamacare was his principal thing, and yeah, yeah. he spoke to both cha- chambers of Congress. And it was like an eight thousand word speech. And I went in and did a search on it, and not one time did he mention food or agriculture. Wow! Right? And so think yeah. about that, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm. highest levels, the the precipitation of like the best thinking that we can bring to the table, and here we are not even addressing it as a concept. It's it's really striking. This podcast is brought to you by Steward, and Dan Miller from Steward is joining me today to talk about the real interest rate. Dan, talk to us about why interest rates aren't all the same. 
So I think a lot of farmers, when they look for funding, they start with the USDA often and the Farm Service Agency, and it looks like a very low interest rate as a headline rate. It is very low, two to three percent often, but there's a lot of time involved in getting mm. that funding. You know, six months to a year of lag of waiting for the funding where you're not gaining or earning new revenue. Uh, many hours, 50 to 100 hours, I think the application estimates even more than that, of time to actually submit and to prepare the materials. A lot of that's your own time, which farmers don't value. But if you put that at 15 bucks an hour, let's say that would really add up. Mm-hmm. And there may require external time, bookkeepers, people to prepare the information. And so I think a lot of times when farmers look at funding, you know, they're hesitant for debt. They want the lowest cost of capital. But there's certainly an opportunity cost of you see the opportunity now, you have something that you want to fund. And if you can fund that in the short term and start to grow more, you're now on the path for growth. And I see all the time where farmers are kind of waiting around for the perfect funding, missing opportunities, missing markets, missing chances to grow. When if a loan is a few more percent of interest, but at the end of the day, you can get it quicker and grow your business and manage the payments. I think that's often the best path forward. I think you can blend it. So I think definitely yeah. you, you, you can go down the path of the low cost government funding, but just solely relying on that and kind of waiting for it. I just think it stalls a lot of businesses when it's really about blending everything that's out there and understanding that the opportunity to grow your business and get to viable scale is very important to, to take the opportunity as it presents itself and not necessarily just wait and measure cost of funding on interest rate. Yeah, absolutely. And since I've gone through actually both the USDA funding and actually even working with you guys, your process is so much simpler. Um, USDA was over six months from the time we applied to the time we actually got the funding. Again, as you said, hundreds of hours, late nights in the office, pounding numbers, and no one likes doing that. Um, So yeah, it's absolutely time. And the USDA typically doesn't understand your business model. So having a team which can come alongside you and give you ideas and help you think through all the aspects and even give some really like maybe thinking about different aspects of it are going to be so key for you to grow your business quickly. And that's where I think a lot of farmers get jaded and frustrated with funding is they go down those bureaucratic mm-hmm. routes. They're not a good fit for that type of funding, even if theoretically the agency is marketing themselves as serving them. is a lot of steps. is very bureaucratic. They don't have the time to keep following up for more document requests and more document requests. So ultimately, I think that that's a path that if you're buying a big piece of real estate, you know, getting a 30, 40 year mortgage at low rate, critically important. But if you're talking about something like a hoop house, a piece of equipment that can pay money quickly and help your business grow, I, I think people need to consider all the options out there and not necessarily just look at interest rate. Absolutely. Well, and, and okay, now, obviously, I don't, you don't need to give an answer on this, but you think that's because of the lobbying that's been done by the healthcare companies that this is how we solve things is we just throw money at getting people through the sickness uh, system? Yeah, actually, I'm excited to answer that. And I'd say <laughs> resoundingly, yes. Um, I, I, I use the term corporatism. Yeah. You know, and, it, and if, you know, I, to kind of reference Steiner, um, you know, he, he had this, this approach called the threefold social order back in 1911, I believe it was 1913. It was a reaction uh, to the First World War when everybody thought the world was going to end. And mm-hmm. he was asked, how do we organize in a way that can regenerate us in a sense? And the, the threefold social order was, was around uh, it, the economy, you know, exchange of value it was around mm-hmm. rights, you know, government, the protection of individual human rights and then culture, you know, our humanness. Um, and this, his premise was that if each sphere in our humanity didn't have complete autonomy and authority, that 
society gets sick. So if you think about the separation of church and state, right, yes. that's that's the rights and, and culture. Yeah. Uh, if you think about corporatism, that's the collusion of economy and rights and government, right? Yep. And we got to get really clear. And I think it's obvious to the average person at this point that we can all sit around the table and identify the problems and really honestly yeah. come up with most of the solutions. Yet yeah. nothing changes, right? Absolutely. And it's entirely frustrating yeah. if people have abandoned the idea that it's even a mechanism that can sustain us. And it, it's hard to argue with that on some level. My premise to that is that we, we can't just leave them be. Um, we also, it's sort of like, you know, the state and federal levels are bought and sold. Like, like imagine you and I had this idea, we're going to go change the farm bill. You know, like where would we start, right? Like, good luck to us. You know, we're going to waste our lives trying to talk people that have already yes. made decisions in ways that they're never going to change. Yes. And it's a waste of our time. So I, you know, I discovered this realm, it's about a year ago, actually, called Rights of Nature. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before no. as a, a legal vehicle, but uh, there's an umbrella called Community Rights and Rights of Nature is the legal mechanism. And it's essentially what it what it is is talking about uh, activating local politics and what happens is if you've ever gone to your city with a good idea like in north carolina in the outer banks they wanted to ban plastic bags or at least put a, a fee on plastic mm -hmm. bags because they're vulnerable out in the ocean they're oh, yeah. polluting everything and it yeah. seems like they should be able to make their mind up and do that right well the state said no because of what's called dylan's rule in north carolina and what's loosely called state preemption it's the same thing federal preemption like the commerce clause, anytime something happens over a state line, it becomes a federal jurisdiction. Yes, it's a centralization yeah. of power. That happened yeah. if you do the work when the Federalists changed the Articles of Confederation, which was the first constitution. The Federalists centralized power. From there, you have a development of uh, you know uh, different court precedents. Yep. Um, yep. That what happened. year was that? What year did that happen? Well, it was... Uh, Let's see. It was 1870s with Santa Cruz and the railroad. I think that I might have the year oh, wrong, okay. but Santa All Cruz right. and the railroad was the first court case that referenced corporate personhood. So yeah. we tend to talk about it like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby and this kind of thing. But that started 150 years ago. And so you, you get to a point where the system's not really broken. It's really just working the way it was built, you know, and yes. you get into regulatory capture and this idea that, you know, we're, we're polluted by PFAS chemistry. Uh, DuPont spun off a, a Kimors company that polluted our river and the community we're at the end of the watershed didn't know it for 15 years. And when we discovered it, we were pissed. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then we we're, we're all activists. Like, you know, we, we got to shut Kimors down. We got to clean up the river and the state department of environmental quality saying, well, we got the ball. We'll handle it now. Four years later. Right. There is no Yes. mindset around this burgeoning chemistry new pfos chemicals are being introduced there's no program to mitigate it and if i go to my city council and say i want to sue kim wars they're going to say my hands are tied the state's got the ball that's the world mm -hmm. that we live in so mm -hmm. what rights of nature says is do your worst we're going to pass local ordinances that break state and federal preemption and you can sue us and most of the time this has happened about 200 times in the united states to date in about 13 states most recently in california um, i'm sorry in florida is Orange County, because you're probably aware of their water issues. And yep. mm -hmm. they passed an 85% ordinance. And actually two weeks ago were the first incidents where a river and a lake sued the corporate polluter. And it's in court right now. Uh, it's moving through the process. So this is something that's coming. It's not known by the masses yet, but it's, it's, it's an end around to corporatism. You know, if we yeah. can give rights to a corporation, yeah. 
we can do, we should be doing the same and yeah. enacting the rights, I should say, which is the legal yeah. delineation. It's not giving rights to a river. It's enacting the rights, inalienable rights yeah. of the river. Yeah. So I could, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but it's worth looking into for sure. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That kind of, you know, one of the things um, I've been keeping our podcast community updated a little bit on this is our, uh, our journey here, because we're inside of a municipality which means that there's, even though we're agriculture, even though we're our own agricultural district, um, the city has decided that we're still commercial, mm-hmm. um, which means that, oh gosh, the regulation and stuff um, that we've already, so we were going to put a small retail store in 16 foot by 24 feet. And it was $10,000 plus in basically engineering and design just to get through development process. And then at that point, we started running the numbers and we saw that we were going to be spending $100,000 plus basically because we had to put in dry wells and parking lots and lighting plans and all this stuff. And that was before we even got to the point where do we need to put a bathroom in for employees? (laughs) Right. Because there's, you know, there's a bathroom 60 feet away that we can, the employees can use, but no, no, that's not good enough. It's got to be inside anyway. Mm -hmm. So what we came down to it, we were just like, this is, this is just ridiculous. Um, and the months and the sleepless nights, and literally I can see my hair going grayer as every week because of this. So um, we went out and started what is known as a 508A1, which hmm. is, it's a nonprofit um, ministry. It's kind of falls under a church, um, but um, it's called a yeah, private membership association. And I think it's actually how, let's say down in your area, uh, bars that don't have uh, liquor licenses serve alcohol. Mm. So it's basically the exact same thing. And uh, basically what you do is you pull yourself out of commerce. And basically when people shop with you, they're not shopping in commerce. They're donating to your, as we called it, ministry or food church or yep. private membership association. Yep. So this obviously allows us a ton of freedoms. It basically means there's no 20C kitchen involved and we want to do prepared foods. Um, again, it's not like uh, if, we, if we went to a farmer's markets, then obviously that would all come back into play because we're at an actual farmer's market, which is someone else's retail and corporate inside of commerce. But if we're on our own property or selling online or even doing our own private drop sites, we're completely outside of commerce. Wow. So it costs a little bit of money to set that up. And, uh, but I, we just literally got our EIN number and, um, we're basically like our, we have a bus now we bought a bus and it's going to be, because the other thing is, yes, you can get outside of commerce, but you still have to, um, comply with the zoning of your areas. And mm. so if we were to build a, a, a stand that would have had to go through development plan, but, we bought a bus, we classify it as an RV, and now we have a retail store. Man, I love it. That that private membership association has been coming up all over the place recently. It is. Yes. That's fascinating yeah. what you've done there. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, what it, I mean, if you notice, $10,000, months of work, literally, we started down this road of getting development plans for both properties, because so there's two properties involved, last July. Wow. This is what this is what government and everyone says, oh, the government's here to help. I'm like, screw that. That is literally the dumbest thing that anyone has ever said. Um, it's not. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to argue that it is. It's you know, I I I've done a deep dive on the history. You know, I, I read the book, uh, The People's History of the United States, Howard mm-hmm. Zinn, and that was really started the fire. And I took a beta tested a class on community rights. And uh, from a, a 
group out in Oregon and they were looking for some feedback and it, it wasn't so much like, this is how you approach these problems. What it really was, was a, a, a true history of the United States. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and it blew my mind because it, you know, it changed my activism. You know, I've been an activist yeah. for a long time and, um, you know, and, and an advocate, um, and I, you know, I would be the one that would be signing the petition and, mm-hmm. you know, people go to the protests and you go to the public hearings and, you're doing all these things. And equally, if you do the history work on regulatory agencies, mm-hmm. you really get clear on the buffer involved, right? Like the, the first one was a railroad uh, yes. regulatory agency. Yep. And yep. it worked and so well to streamline their special interests that they did them everywhere. And here we yep. are 100 years later, and the, the, really they're serving the purpose of undermining, you know, this is something that really hits me. It's, you know, these the DEQ, because I'll pick on them, um, they're not angling on how to shut Kim Moore's down and how to clean the river up. They, what they're doing is they are effectively asking how much is allowed, right? Mm-hmm. They are legalizing the pollution of the river and the ecosystem. They are legalizing yeah. the pollution of people. And when you, when you get to that point of clarity, kind of like I could feel in your statement yeah. a minute ago, it changes how you do things. Right. And yes. I think that's a moment that so many of us are in and, if we could just, you know, keep moving in that direction, it does appear like with your private membership associations, there are ways around it. You got to get yeah. creative, but you yeah. know, there's always and, an opportunity. Yeah. And it came originally, I was like, well, you know, I'll just cross all the T's and dot the I's and go along with the city because they're glad to have me. Well, maybe they are glad, but they still want to throw the entire 864 pages of the code book at us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, treating us like a Walmart because literally they have one size fits all. It's interesting you keep bringing up the railroad because um, we started a nonprofit farm in upstate New York called Pitney Meadows Community Farm. We uh, raised a couple million dollars, bought 164 acres, the last remaining farm inside of Saratoga Springs. Um, wow. And uh, the, it was split by the railroad. And literally we, we, we worked for months trying to get in touch with them and we still never were able to get back the right of way, which they still don't even use. They don't even use the right of way. It's literally just this 80 foot wide strip that goes right down the middle of the farm and causes, you know, issues with getting across and all that. Um, But I was recently talking to one of the uh, planning board members out here. And again, I've gotten pretty cozy with a lot of them because I've been in front of them so many times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But um, he was saying the thing about the railroads is they are under direct they are under federal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And because it was all about being able to move troops across the US really quickly during wartime. And so they basically got almost a carte blanche to do whatever the heck they want. They can use chemicals that none of us, well, that none of us would ever dream to want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the amount of stuff that they get away with and they can take from eminent domain so much stuff. But mm. fascinating, you know, where it comes down to, and they all put it for to the aspect of, oh, well, this is of course for the national security. And when you put it under national security, it all comes back down to marketing and how you spin it. You can get away with anything. Oh, uh, I mean that yeah, it, it's it really is discouraging. And it's it's that way, it's sort of one of those things where like once you've given up the territory, how yep. do you get it back? There's right? no way. And yeah. it's so frustrating. And, and a real critical example of that is the Supreme Court, right? Yes. And if you look yeah. back in this history exercise, one of the things that I really stuck with me was when I learned about the Articles of Confederation, I actually had never heard about that document before. It was the original constitution written by the founders coming out of monarchy, right? And their yeah. mindset was, we don't want to be owned by anybody, freedom, right? And liberty yes. and the whole thing and in real time. And what they wrote was a legislative document that was representative of the people's voice. They didn't have a judicial arm. They didn't have a Supreme Court. They didn't even have a 
they had a president, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't an executive branch. It wasn't one of those check and balance, the trifecta that came out of the next iteration of the Constitution. And so when you when you really explore the mindset at that time, we were aware of these things, mm-hmm. right? That we could undermine what we would want if we were asked without a healthy system. But what won the day was this power grab, essentially, yeah. by the Federalists that, that did, I mean, literally, it was propaganda. They were writing under pseudonyms in the newspapers, which yeah. everybody read because, you know, that was yeah. all there was back then. And people's mindset was was turned on all of these what ifs. You know, what if you start a farm in your neighborhood and 18 wheelers are backing in and, you know, there's not enough parking spots and all of these like worst yeah. case scenarios that you're yeah. referencing. I mean, well, they were here too. Yeah. The city basically said, well, what size trucks are you having in? Cause we're afraid that you're going to need to move your driveway because you're gonna have so right. much traffic. And I'm like, seriously, folks, if I get to that point, I will be more than happy to do anything you want, but let's just start us out at letting people drive in and out and not go worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly it, and in the irony in a neighborhood context, because we're you know we don't have any land yeah. left. There's like ten percent of the county can even be developed. You know, it's like completely yeah. developed. So you know this idea in, in a residential neighborhood of you know someone on a quarter to half half an acre setting up a farm stand and having all of this you know commerce happening. Yeah, really, what they're going to be doing is taking that food to a restaurant. Or, you know, yeah. the practicality yeah. of it is not considered, yeah. right? So they just yeah. say, look, you, you've got to, you, you know, you've got to do all these things. It's restricted here, there, but they're not thinking like a farmer. And that yeah. that ends up being a lot of the work that I do is to try to, you know, with a title and being an elected official, it helps me navigate some of those channels a little bit easier. It's one of those ironies, you know, it's like, I'm not saying anything that's really different, <laughs> but somehow you're hearing me different and that's fine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I kind of play that card, but you know, it, if you can get into the right people, there's an opportunity to think critically. Yeah. But, you, but what you run into is that bureaucratic reality of how you have to think about worst case scenario. And then that attracts these people. And, it, you know, I'll reference that threefold social order again. It's like what I think has happened is that we've given up so much ground on our, our culture, on what we are as humans. Right. Yes. And what's taken that territory is the government and the economy. And then we're looking back to the government and the economy in hopes that they're going to provide our culture for us, right? And mm-hmm. they can't because it's not part of the human equation. And, you know, and it's like trying to go to the DMV to get inspired. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, have you seen Zootopia? Never going to happen. Have you seen the scene in Zootopia with the sloths at? Um, yes. 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 It, bingo. I, every time I go, I just play that in my head and I uh, sit there and stew. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's like, you know, what, what do we expect? right? Yes, is a moment yes. to come to uh, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I don't, obviously we can go back and forth about this, but I, I, I want to kind of wrap this and I'm, obviously we need to wrap this up here, but yes. uh, you know, I will say one thing is that we put a petition out, we presented our case to the people after literally going through two planning commission and the second planning commission meeting was so bad. I mean, we were yelled out by members of the count of the planning commission and we went home basically just shaking because it was, it was, it was a bad meeting. Mm. Um, and we basically just told the community about it and the community spoke. And we went to that third meeting and literally everyone up there, there was a complete change because hmm. they had been told by the people that we want this. We don't want your crap any longer. We're tired of this. We just, um, so we had a complete change. So again, I think, you know, with the small community, there absolutely as is a way to change it. Yeah. Going yeah. back to, you know, this, the city is because we went private membership association, everything that people give to us is tax deductible. Hmm. 
every, they buy from us. It's basically a tax deductible donation to our ministry. That's amazing. And how, how has the city handled that? Have they-, well, they don't know yet, but what they just did is they lost out on massive amounts of taxes. Right. Because yeah. And, and yeah. I don't think they realize that, but when they do figure that out, they're going to be like, maybe we should have actually tried to be a little bit more helpful along the way instead wow. of literally putting up nine months of roadblocks. Well, kudos to you, man. That's so important to go first in those contexts. And, you know, locally, I ran a mayoral campaign two years ago. Mm-hmm. And before that, 15% of people voted. When we ran, 20% of people voted, which we still one in five people. Yes. Uh, but then you look at federal elections and 75% of people vote, right? Yeah. So we're paying attention to the soap opera. Right. So if I, could leave, <laughs> if I could leave your your listeners with anything, it's the importance of local elections. Yes. You can do more than we imagine. Yes. And our hands are never tied. You know? yeah. so. And just showing up at a yeah. city council meeting, at a planning commission meeting, no one shows up to those things. That's right. And they, all they do is complain about the city. And if literally if all it would take is six people would show up and voice their opinion on an issue and it would, it would change it one way or another, because that's, uh-huh. that's all it needs these yeah, days. Man. Amen. Well, yeah. Thanks so, for your attention on that. It's amazing. Yeah. Where can people find out what you, you've got a website, beagriculture.com. Yep. You've got awesome blogs over there. You uh, do some ag consulting, um, activated water. You've got a great, great article here that I'm looking at on the compost tea, because obviously yeah. you've done a lot of work in that. Right. Um, I'm actually got to do, got to do a presentation on compost tea and I am bookmarking this because it's so good. Oh, great. Uh, um, so yeah, what else do you, where, where do you want people to go? Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, the beagriculture.com. My whole thing is to show up, you know, let's get to know one another, throw it all against the wall and see what sticks and follow the thread. So if there's anyone out there that's intrigued by any of the things that we've talked about, I'd love to continue a conversation to just open invite. And, you know, if if you're into um, the the food desert conversation, if you go to northsidefoodcoop.com, um, you can see what we're doing. You have to be a North Carolina resident to be an owner in the co-op, but we, we offer a pay it forward program. That's a $90 sponsor towards the $100 ownership that allows someone in the, tar- the trade area around the target site to become an owner if they're in need of financial assistance. So oh, very you know, cool. that, that, that would be a specific ask if anybody's inspired mm-hmm. by that. Um, but other than that, I think be agriculture, hit me up. And, you know, if you got a project, if I can help, I'm more than happy to talk about it and yeah. see where it goes. Yeah. One of the things that we're hoping to do with the bus is obviously on site, we'll be open a couple of days a week, but then three or four days a week, we'll take that bus and hit the, the inner cities um, because we definitely have some areas that need work. Um, so yeah. So I obviously want to check out what you guys got going on and um, because yeah, I think that's a huge need in our community to just let people get better food. Great. I can't wait to see that bus in operation. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. We're working so on cool. the color scheme right now. Incredible. <laughs> so. I'll be paying attention. All right. Well, Evan, thank you so much for your time today. This was a fascinating conversation. I never know what I'm going to get into on some of these, but this was fun and uh, appreciate your work and what you're doing. And uh, yeah, just the history you have. And uh, again, go check out beagriculture.com to find out more. Thanks, Michael. Great to be with you. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for 
all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.